Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. You're listening to Ohio versus the World, an American history podcast. Subscribe and follow the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to join the conversation on Facebook or at our website, OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Ohio versus the World is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Go to evergreenpodcast.com for all our past episodes. Now here's your host, Alex Hasty. Welcome back, everybody. It's the second half of Season 7 of Ohio vs. the World. Today we'll be looking at the biggest naval battle in American history, the Battle of Midway, fought in June 1942 in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, a turning point in the war that would ultimately lead to American victory in the Pacific three long years later. We'll take you into that battle, the aircraft carriers, the dive bombers, the torpedoes, and we'll look at the all-important role code-breaking cryptography played in the role of a man named Joe Rochefort, born here in Ohio, and his contribution to this most important of American naval victories. We thank you for bearing with us on this little mid-season break. We took some time, went up with the family and the in-laws up to Lakeside, Ohio, the old Chautauqua up there right on the water, right on Lake Erie. My son living his absolute best life up there. Pool, splash pad, lake, beach, golf carts, ice cream. He loved it. And always good to get up to Lake Erie this summer. Uh, we stopped by me and Mrs. Ohio the World, went to Twin Oaks Brewing up in Catawba Island. A great spot if you're ever up on the lake. Go check that place out. Really amazing. Uh, beers, great food, incredible views. Really a great spot in, in Ohio. Go check out Twin Oast Brewing. And don't forget, Ohio v. The World is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. You can go to evergreenpodcast.com. They've been so helpful. We actually went up to their new headquarters, downtown Cleveland, last month. Met with everybody, talked about the show, and then things that we're going to be doing here in the seasons coming up. But so much fun to work with them, and they've been great helping us get this show expanded to an even wider audience. Let's get all our old episodes on evergreenpodcast.com. Uh, they've got an entire history channel, so if you're into American history, world history, they've got eight or nine other shows on there, really cool stuff. Um, we listen to pretty much all of them. Also, all, you can get all our old episodes and follow new episodes at ohiovtheworldpodcast.com, our website, or email us, ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. And as always, we're selling our t-shirts. If you want a t-shirt, just email me. Got great Ohio v. The World t-shirts. We'll send you a free Ohio v. The World bumper sticker as well. And don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes. You can rate and review on Spotify, all those services, wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us shoot up the rankings. Come let us know why you love the show, uh, and we'll give you a shout-out here and read one, one or two on air. As far as some history updates with us, as far as what we're up to, uh, we were just named the secretary of the Board of Trustees at the Ohio History Connection, uh, the formerly the Ohio Historical Society. Uh, we were renamed to the board and, and now named secretary of that board. Big honor and so great to be part of the leadership over there. And our new CEO, Megan Wood, uh, the first female CEO of the Ohio History Connection. Uh, she's off and running and doing a, such a great job. Also, we've been named to a committee as part of US 250, our semi-keen centennial. Our 250th anniversary is coming up here in, 
in four short years. Uh, and we'll be working on part of the Ohio uh, programming and celebration of this great country in our 250th anniversary. Uh, that'll be July 4th, 2026. There'll be more exciting stuff coming out about that. Just starting to get to work on that, and that's really something we're looking forward to. Today we'll be going to the Pacific War. Absolute brutal conflict between the Japanese Empire and the United States of America. It begins when Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, but really it begins years before that. We'll talk about the code breakers and the connections with the state of Ohio that are working against the Japanese and breaking their codes as early as the 1920s. Many saw this war in the Pacific coming. The Japanese were already at war with China until Pearl Harbor. The Philippines, they take incredible area in the Pacific in those opening months. A mere six months after Pearl Harbor is the Battle of Midway. So after getting our clock clean for about half a year, the United States turned things around, and it's all thanks not only to the great sailors and, and airmen, but also thanks to the cryptographers, the code breakers like Joe Rochefort. We'll even talk about Agnes Meyer Driscoll of Westerville, Ohio, her role as a mentor to Joe Rochefort and others in her breaking of the early Japanese codes, as we'll look at the most important battle on the high seas of the Pacific in World War II. We're locked and loaded. It's Episode 7, Ohio versus the Rising Sun. obviously begins on December 7th, 1941, a day which will live in infamy. It's come up on this show a number of times, the surprise attack by the Japanese at Pearl Harbor, an attack that would kill 2,400 U.S. personnel. We always thought that that was a smashing success of an attack by the Japanese. Americans seemingly had no idea it was coming. A number of ships were damaged, lives lost, planes destroyed, our Pacific fleet in tatters. But as we talk with our first guest, who's Peter Monsoor, so great to finally have him on the show, the military historian, retired U.S. Army colonel. Uh, he was the executive officer to, to General David Petraeus during the troop surge in Iraq and is now the General Raymond E. Mason Chair of Military History at The Ohio State University. Great guy, someone that we've been meaning to have on the show. We talked with Colonel Mansour, and he tells us that Pearl Harbor was not a complete success. In fact, it was a failure in many regards. No aircraft carriers sunk. Other opportunities missed by the Japanese on this complete surprise attack as we're caught that Sunday morning with our pants down. We talk with Dr. Peter Mansour about why Admiral Yamamoto, the head of the Imperial Japanese Navy, would have thought that this attack was a failure. The attack was an operational defeat for Japan and a strategic disaster, and we can count the number of ways it missed the U.S. aircraft carriers. But what they could have done is destroyed the fuel depot and repair facilities of the U.S. Pacific Fleet. They could have targeted the submarine fleet, and yet none of this occurred. They sank a bunch of battleships that were eventually all but two raised off the floor of Pearl Harbor and used in the war. But at the strategic level, attack united the American people in a way that no other event could have. Its sneak attack caused the American people to desire revenge against uh, Imperial Japan in a way that a declaration of war and an attack on the Philippines, which is what everyone expected to have happen, could not have. In many ways, the, the Japanese attack merely united the American people and uh, made sure that they were going to fight this war to the bitter end rather than come to some sort of negotiated solution. The Japanese war in the Pacific that begins on Pearl Harbor is extended all over the region. 
We'll have Colonel Mansoor tick off the places that they capture, the battles that the Americans lose, that the English lose. Australia's in jeopardy. Hawaii's in jeopardy. Even the west coast of the United States is thought to be in jeopardy. You can go listen to our episode, Ohio vs. Incarceration, about the internment of hundreds of thousands of Japanese-American citizens on the west coast of the United States during this time period, February, March of 1942. The losses are mounting. And people are panicked for good reason. There's no wins. We talked with Colonel Peter Mansour of the Ohio State University about the opening months of the war, and the Americans are clearly losing. Well, things are certainly not good. The Philippines fell in um, April and May. The Bataan Peninsula in, in April and, and Corregidor, the small island in the mouth of the Philippine of the Manila Bay in May. The um, Japanese had taken most of uh, the Dutch East Indies, modern-day Indonesia. They had invaded Malaya, destroyed the British base at Singapore, which was supposedly impregnable, kind of like the rock of the Gibraltar of the Pacific, and it fell pretty quickly. The greatest defeat in British military history, by the way. Forces advanced on India, overcoming the Burma Corps along the way. In the Southwest Pacific, the Japanese had taken northern uh, New Guinea, they had taken Rabaul, they, they had invaded Guadalcanal and were putting an airbase there. All of these uh, various moves were designed to create a perimeter of Japanese outposts that could prevent the United States and its allies from counterattacking and, uh, and recovering the, the lost territory, which covered thousands of miles of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, so there were no bright spots um, that you could perhaps point to was the uh, spirited defense of Wake Island by the U.S. Marine Corps, an incredible uh, accomplishment for a small force of uh, Marines to actually sink several Japanese ships and kill a number of the invaders before they were overwhelmed. But that's it until you get to the Doolittle Raid. United States aircraft carrier Hornet, part of a task force steaming into Japanese waters, is now revealed as the secret base from which American planes first bombed Tokyo. The dramatic saga of a combined Army-Navy mission that brought panic to Japan and stirred the world for its brilliance and daring. Each bomber sets its course for carefully prearranged military objectives in Japan, a course that will put them over Tokyo at high noon in broad daylight. Then journeys end for the great adventure. Fuel gone, 15 of the planes are wrecked as their crews are forced to bail out over China and Japanese-occupied territory. The Japanese government flatly admits that of eight uniformed flyers captured, some have been executed. This in flagrant violation of all international law. 64 of the 80 men who took off were rescued, and most of them have returned to duty. In Chongqing, Madam Chiang Kai-shek honored Doolittle and his gallant men for a raid that did much to shake the complacency of the Japanese warlords. Ah, the Doolittle Raid. America's response to Pearl Harbor. April 18, 1942. Lieutenant Colonel Jimmy Doolittle leads a team of B-25s over Tokyo and other cities on Honshu, dropping bombs. The United States can strike mainland Japan. It's really this attack that would lead to Admiral Yamamoto looking to expand Japanese territory into the Central Pacific at a place like Midway. We talk with Peter Mansoor about the Doolittle Raid in April of 1942. The Doolittle Raid had an enormous 
impact on the strategic course of the, of the war to take medium bombers and take off from the deck of the aircraft carrier, the USS Hornet, and bomb Tokyo and other cities. The damage done was minimal at best. But the fact that US bombers uh, targeted the Japanese capital and other uh, cities really put egg on the face of the Imperial Japanese Navy and the and the army for because they had promised the emperor the war would never reach Japan. It would be a war of conquest um, and Japan would be spared any of the ravages. And so the Japanese, after the doodle raid, decided that they had best continue to expand their perimeter rather than defending what they had already taken in order to push U.S. carriers further from Japanese shores. It would lead to the Battle of Midway. Our second guest is Trent Hone. He's a military historian, the author of the new book, Mastering the Art of Command, Admiral Chester Nimitz and Victory in the Pacific, published by the U.S. Naval Institute. Trent was a really fascinating interview. and His new book really looks into the specific war. And the Admiral Chester Nimitz, who's in charge, he's the commander-in-chief of the Pacific Fleet in the Pacific Ocean areas. And his story is linked inexorably to the Battle of Midway first big success. Although Nimitz is named to the head of the Pacific Fleet after Pearl Harbor, the military brass back in Washington like Admiral King and others are not entirely sure that he's the right guy for the job. The losses are mounting. Chester Nimitz, who's now one of the most famous naval officers in American history, didn't seem like he was long for the job. He needs a win. We talked with Trent Hone about the state of affairs in the spring of 1942. Nimitz needs some victories. He needs to prove to his fleet that they can that they can win. And he's facing tremendous pressure to do something like that, to win a victory by President Roosevelt. You know, Roosevelt is not happy that the Navy hasn't been able to do much of anything. The Navy Secretary, Frank Knox, also displeased, and, and Admiral Ernest King, who is the Navy's commander-in-chief. They're not sure Nimitz is the right commander for the Pacific. He gets his first real opportunity to try to win a victory over these Japanese mobile forces at the Battle of Coral Sea in May 1942. And this is where Rochefort and Hypo are really important because they had pieced together by breaking pieces of the Japanese Navy's code, JN-25B. And so Nimitz puts a very aggressive concept of a plan together to ambush the Japanese in the Coral Sea. It doesn't work out the way that Nimitz wants. Halsey's carriers don't arrive in time. Lexington and Yorktown fight alone, uh, but they emerge with a strategic victory. We won't just take you through the blow-by-blow of the most important naval battle in U.S. history, the Battle of Midway today. We'll also tell you about the important role of code-breaking. Today's episode, Ohio vs. the Rising Sun, is almost a sequel to an old episode we did back in season two called Ohio vs. Espionage. It was about a, a female codebreaker named Agnes Meyer Driscoll out of Westerville, Ohio. Agnes's work, she would end up being the mentor to the man for today's story, Joe Rochefort from Ohio. But her work in the 20s and 30s, she focused on the Japanese codes and breaking those codes. And her work had, had been noticed by Admiral Nimitz on his way up in the 1930s. He's watching the Japanese Navy, this growing force. But Admiral Nimitz had known since 1934, to trust the code that that kind of espionage cryptography could be a huge factor in any future war with the Japanese. Trent Hone talks to us about Nimitz and his trusting of Joe Rochefort in code breaking. 
Nimitz had a really good sense of what intelligence could offer because back in 1934, he was captain of cruiser Augusta. Augusta was the flagship of the Asiatic fleet at the time. And that year, the, the Imperial Japanese Navy conducted a series of exercises. Their codes weren't as sophisticated as JN-25B, as what they were using in 1942. Uh, but they still had codes, broke those codes, and put together an order of battle for those Japanese maneuvers and tracked them using code breaking and signals intelligence, radio intercepts. So he knew about it. He knew what intelligence code breaking could reveal. And so he's he's disposed because he's under this pressure and because he has knowledge of what code breaking can do to trust Hypo, to trust Rochefort's work. We found some old experts from our interview with Beth Weinhart. She's a historian from the Westerville Library here in a suburb of Columbus, and she was instrumental in getting a historical marker placed outside that library near the childhood home of Agnes Meyer Driscoll, an incredible story of female in the 1920s and 30s that was leading our cryptography departments. She was making groundbreaking discoveries, breaking Japanese codes. We talk with Beth about Agnes Meyer Driscoll and some of these old clips we found from 2017. Go back and listen to that episode. We'll put a link in the show notes. But it's Agnes who would begin the process that would lead us to victory at, at Midway. Agnes begins to work what became known as the Japanese Red Code Book. That and the, the solving of the Blue Code Book a little later are key to the military struggle that's starting to take place between the U.S. and Japan. This is this is a battle that's going on, and it's a battle behind the scenes that people see is important. But even given that, not a lot of resources are given to her or that whole area in the Navy. The, the other thing that's kind of interesting is how important she is at this point. We realize because of this code breaking that the Japanese are building a battle, a class of battleships that's two knots faster than anything the U.S. has on the drawing board. The 26 knots, I think. Correct. And so we have to scrap what we're doing and retool uh, and luckily, we did that because that had an impact in World War II. But we retool so that we are a step ahead of the Japanese. And, of course, they do not know that we have broken their codes. Right. Like we said, that episode we did in Season 2, Ohio vs. Espionage, kind of a prequel to this episode. But Beth Weinhardt from Westerville takes us through exactly how Agnes was the unsung hero of, of Midway. She was, would have been out of cryptography at, at the time of the battle. But she's the one who taught the spycraft to people like Joe Rochefort and the American Naval Intelligence officers that would be leading the charge in World War II. Her code name at this point is Madam X, uh, or some people called her Miss Aggie. Yeah. It took her three years using essentially pencil and paper there were 85,000 code groups in this code. So this is staggering achievement. And the other thing I think is very interesting about this is how quickly she realized that they changed their code books. She simply looks at one line of code that uh, someone showed her and realizes immediately that they're using something different. And for three years, they don't really know. While she's working on this, they don't know what the Japanese are doing. The Battle of Midway, uh, Agnes 
actually was key to that. She solved the cipher component of the five num system used by the Japanese after the Blue Book. She was part of the solution that allowed the U.S. to know where that attack was going to come, that it was going to come to Midway. The Ohio Connection to today's show is Joe Rochefort, U.S. Naval officer stationed in Hawaii in the buildup to the Battle of Midway. He's the one. His cryptography department, his analysts, would be the ones who would crack the, the Japanese code that would help lead to victory at the Battle of Midway. Joe's born at the turn of the century, 1900, in Dayton, Ohio. He would later move to Los Angeles, join the U.S. Navy, and he would fall under the tutelage of Agnes Meyer Driscoll in 1924. He began focusing on Japan, make trips to Japan, learn the Japanese language. And by 1942, he finds himself in Hawaii as the head of the hypo station near Pearl Harbor, where he's breaking down radio and other transmissions from the Japanese Navy and Army, trying to break the code to help people like Admiral Nimitz make their next move. He had been successful in helping them in the Battle of Coral Sea in May of 1942, kind of the, the lead up to the Battle of Midway, a huge battle that the Americans have some success, one of their first real successes of the war, even though they lose an aircraft carrier. Military historian Dr. Peter Monsoor from The Ohio State University joins us to talk about Joe Rochefort and his work in beginning to crack the code of the Japanese Navy. Well, Commander Rochefort and his crew in uh, you know some dark, dank basement in, uh, in Hawaii played a real pivotal role in the Battle of Midway. They broke portions of the Japanese Naval Code, Jan 25, and this allowed Admiral Nimitz to plan a response to the Japanese planned invasion of, of Midway. Rochefort, in fact, had a, a gang of cryptanalysts that worked for him, but they were in direct competition with a much larger organization, which worked out of D, uh, Washington, D.C. And even though it was Rochefort and his organization that made the key discovery of the Japanese plan, they didn't receive any credit for it for years after the, uh, and decades really, after the event in question. Finally, he was given uh, credit and uh, awarded uh, a citation for what he had done. But they did really play uh, the crucial role in the uh, buildup to the uh, Battle of Midway. Trent Hone, author, military historian, rejoins the show. So we talk about Joe Rochefort and how he began to put this all together, that the next big move that the Japanese Navy would be making would be an attack on Midway. Rochefort, working at a station hypo in Hawaii, doesn't know exactly what the Japanese are up to, but it's clear that something big is in the works. At the same time, Rochefort and Hypo are constantly trying to learn more about the Japanese intentions, you know, from the signals intelligence that they have. Code breaking is a subset of that. They're also, you know, understanding uh, Japanese messages, who is messaging whom. The radio people on uh, Carrier Akagi, for example, had a very heavy finger and they could pick Akagi out just by how the signals were being sent from that ship. In early March, Rochefort pieces together the fact that an attack is coming, a Japanese attack is coming. Doesn't know where, doesn't know when, but he knows it's associated with uh, a K, the K campaign. And then on the 4th of March, two Japanese flying boats bomb Oahu. They don't hit anything of significance. The bombs you know, sort of fall harmless. Uh, but this is what Rochefort had picked up. And there's enough traffic about this that Rochefort begins to piece together some of the Japanese code groups. And this is where he begins to recognize that, that AF might be midway. 
Rochefort and his team think AF is Midway, this little island where the U.S. have a, an airfield and a base strategically placed in, in the Pacific Ocean northwest of Hawaii. But the problem is Hypo is always battling with the intelligence folks and Navy intelligence officers back in D.C. Throughout the war, there would always be this conflict between the bureaucracy back in D.C., the leadership there, and those that are in theater, those that are on the front lines, people like Nimitz, people like Rochefort, who are in it. He must convince Washington. Nimitz seems to believe him. Nimitz knows Rochefort's work and Station Hypo. They've been right in the past. But he needs a ruse, a way to prove that AF is Midway Island, that that's where the big strike is going to be. Peter Monsoor tells us of the ingenious way that they confirm AF is Midway Island. So they knew that there was a big operation being planned and they knew the target was AF. They had broken enough of the code to figure that out, but they didn't know what AF stood for. So one of the members of the um, uh, cryptanalyst team decided, you know, why don't we have Midway send a, a message in the clear, uncoded, that their uh, water filtration system had broken down and that they were running short of fresh water. They tried it. It should have been obvious to the Japanese that this might be a ruse because, it, you know, you would probably not broadcast something of that import uh, uncoded. Nevertheless, they ordered the radio operators at Midway to send the message. They did, and the Japanese fell for it. Pretty soon thereafter, there's this coded message from the Japanese that says uh, AF is running short of uh, fresh water. And so they are able to determine Midway is the, the objective and plan the operation accordingly. Once the Japanese respond that they need to take water to AF, Nimitz is convinced. He starts moving forces, getting everything ready for an ambush at Midway Island. But he still has to convince Washington, D.C. We'll talk with Trent Hone about those issues and the way that Nimitz is actually able to get all their forces, three aircraft carriers and more ships up to Midway Island. It's a really interesting way that he makes sure that the South Pacific, Australia, is still protected as much as he can while still getting all the forces he can to take on Yamamoto, as admiral of the combined fleet. We talked with Trent Hone about how Nimitz uses Rochefort's intelligence to get ready for the Battle of Midway. And on 13 May, a Japanese supply ship gets a message about bringing supplies to AF which they know, which Rochefort already believes is Midway, for the second K campaign. And so Rochefort puts these two together. And he tells um, Edwin Layton, the Nimitz's intelligence officer, hey, uh, you know, this is a big deal. We think this offensive, it's going to come to Midway. Or Layton tells Nimitz. And Nimitz is like, ah, okay, here's an opportunity. Complicating the issue has a standing order that there's going to be a, a carrier force in the South Pacific because King is very focused on making sure that the supply lines between the West Coast of the United States and Australia are preserved and protected. Doesn't want the Japanese to cut off and isolate Australia uh, because that is where the United States is going to be building up forces for uh, General MacArthur and potentially an offensive thrust uh, northward toward the Philippines. Nimitz has to work around this. He's got to first, you know, convince the Washington group that. You know, Midway is the place where this attack is likely. And he's also got to sort of gain some more flexibility. You know, 
I want to use these carrier forces. They're part of the Pacific Fleet. I'm the Pacific Fleet commander. I need to be able to do this. But also, Nimitz wants an excuse to bring Halsey back to Pearl Harbor. Uh, and this is a great thing that was uncovered in um, John Lundstrom's uh, research. And he put it in his book, uh, Black Shoe Carrier Admiral, which is about Admiral Fletcher's performance in the, the first three carrier battles of, of World War II. Nimitz sends an eyes-only message to Halsey. You know, make sure your carrier force gets sighted. Because it's in position to ambush the Japanese invasion of these Gilbert Islands. And he does. Now that's going to prevent the invasion of the Gilbert Islands. Now Nimitz has some flexibility and basically tells Halsey, okay, come north, come back to Pearl Harbor, and uh, I need you in the Central Pacific. Now there's a back and forth between Nimitz and King about all this. And if you look at the timestamps and the message traffic, it looks like Nimitz is saying, okay, you know, look, here's my case. I really want to be flexible with these carriers. Here's the good reasons. Here's what I want to do. Uh, and then King responds back, okay, I think I see your point. That probably makes sense. Why don't you, you know, why don't you bring the carriers back to the Central Pacific? But if you look at the actual timing and the actual actions, Unimitz is basically, is not asking permission to bring these carriers back. He's stating his intent. And then he acts. He tells Halsey to come back before King actually gives his approval. And it's really interesting to me to see that. Uh, I was excited when I uncovered that uh, because it just shows how aggressive Nimitz is being and also how he's trying to shape the Japanese understanding, right? He ensures Halsey is sighted in the South Pacific and then very quickly move Halsey back to the Central Pacific. On the staff of Admiral Chester Nimitz, Pacific commander, a team of code breakers has untangled a mass of enemy radio messages. They contain grim news. Early in June, hardly a month after the Battle of the Coral Sea and 5,000 miles to the north, Admiral Yamamoto plans a massive attack on Midway Island, a strategic American outpost. His objectives are to secure an advanced base for new all-out attacks on Pearl Harbor and to lure the remnants of our Pacific fleet to annihilation. The military installation at Midway Island is a, what we would call a firewall today for the American military strategy in the Pacific. They cannot lose Midway. It's kind of a door to the Hawaiian Islands. Uh, Pearl Harbor can be bombed at ease from Midway Island. Admiral Nimitz must do everything he can to protect Midway. Tron Hone talks to us about why Midway was a firewall. King's instructions to Nimitz, even before you know, Nimitz assumes command of the, of the Pacific fleet, at the end of December 1941, King says, you know, look, you've got, you've got two jobs primarily. One is hold the line Hawaii to Midway and maintain its communications with the West Coast of the U.S. And then second, maintain communications between the West Coast and Australia uh, by you know, securing the, the island chains that, that, that allow that um, communication to occur, the bases that are being stood up at places like Samoa and Fiji. And so you know, it's, it's right there in those instructions. Nimitz needs to hold Midway. Admiral Yamamoto, the mastermind behind Pearl Harbor, he knew that Midway was, was a place of importance for the Americans. He knew they would fight to defend it. But what we asked is, why is Japan so intent on having this all-out battle with the Americans? They want to take Midway and draw the Americans out to a decisive battle. But why is that? They're having so much success all over the Pacific. But the Admiral Yamamoto, it's now or never. The Japanese have the advantage. They're more experienced. They have more aircraft carriers, but the United States war machine is cranking up. 
Yamamoto can see the Japanese have one aircraft carrier in the pipeline. It would actually take all the way until 1944 until it's in service. The U.S. is going to have five built by early 1943, and more on the way. The United States industrial might and the, the amount of money they're willing to spend to win this war in Japan, Yamamoto knows they have to knock them out early, get them to the peace table, and maybe they can end this war in the Pacific. The empire can survive. And that was the plan with Pearl Harbor, but it didn't work. We talked with Peter Mansour about why the Japanese were so aggressive in setting up this Battle of Midway. Pearl Harbor was a disappointment to Yamamoto in part because they didn't get the aircraft carriers, the U.S. aircraft carriers, which they knew would be pivotal in any counteroffensive by the United States in the Pacific. And he wanted to bring them to battle. He figured the only way to bring the U.S. carriers to battle was to threaten an objective that was important enough that they would be forced to fight. And they thought that Midway Island at the very tip of the uh, Hawaiian island chain represented this sort of objective. Uh, and so they were looking for a great sea victory that included this time, not just uh, sinking battleships, but sinking the crown jewels of the U.S. Pacific fleet, the, uh, the aircraft carriers. You know, Yamamoto and Japanese intelligence could read U.S. legislation as easily as anyone and U.S. legislation in 1938 and again in 1940 uh, put on the books a, a fleet that was capable of dominating the Pacific Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean, by the way. And they knew that these ships would start coming out in large numbers in late 1942, early 1943, and that whatever they were going to do offensively, they had best do it before then. And so this was another issue that they were considering when planning the operation. As the calendar turns to June 1942, Admiral Nimitz has his pieces in place. He knows that the Japanese are coming to Midway. He knows that they're bringing everything to attack the island, take it over, aircraft carriers, planes, land forces, you name it. The big strike is going to be at Midway Island. Everything is proceeding just as Joe Rochefort from Dayton, Ohio said it would. This had to give Nimitz incredible confidence to be as aggressive as possible that this might be his chance to turn the tide of the war in the Pacific. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They show up almost exactly where they were anticipated. Uh, as I said, a day is off uh, because the Japanese get a little bit of a late start. Uh, but in terms of where they are and when they're sighted, uh, it makes a great deal of, you know, it aligns perfectly with what Hypo had been had been predicting. And so what what Nimitz was expecting, Nimitz was evidently you know beaming. You know, he's really excited. It's working out the way we expect. He sleeps on a cot in his office that night so that he's ready. Uh, for the next morning. And then after just a little after 5.30 the next morning, the Japanese carriers are sighted pretty much exactly where they were expected to be. There's a lot of myths about the Battle of Midway. We did so much research on this episode. There's so many people that know so much about it. It's one of the most analyzed and overanalyzed battles in American military history. But we always understood it that the Americans were huge underdogs and they had less forces and they pulled off this miraculous victory. But the Americans were not only the ones doing the ambushing at Midway, they also had pretty equal forces, maybe not in training or expertise. The Japanese, you know, their pilots and, and their naval officers were, were among the best in the world. The Japanese hadn't lost a naval battle that really I can remember. You talk about the Battle of Coral Sea before, but they almost had what people call victory disease. You can go back to 1905 and the battle, you know, in the Russo-Japanese War. 
the Japanese Navy annihilated the Russian Navy, basically made them, forced them to make peace in 1905-1906. But this myth of Midway that we were totally overmatched is just not true. And another, you know, we're only bringing three carriers to the battle as we're trying to get the Yorktown fixed and, and out of Pearl Harbor. But we also have a fourth carrier that Nimitz is armed to the teeth. That's the island of Midway. So many planes there, and they're ready for this attack that's coming from the Japanese from the air. You know, troops to move in amphibiously afterwards. But really acts as our fourth aircraft carrier. It's a stationary Midway Island. Americans actually were considering that in planning the battle. They knew they only had three carriers to four for, for Japan, but they considered the island a fourth carrier and said that that evened the odds. The Battle of Midway, the Japs hoped, would be their stepping stone to Pearl Harbor, Australia, Alaska, and eventually the United States mainland. The Battle of Midway would begin on June 4th, 1942. And since this is a podcast, we have to kind of help you visualize Let's put the island of Midway kind of in the middle of a clock. Nimitz positions his carriers and his forces to the northeast of the island, kind of behind the island, uh, like basically about 2 o'clock if you're looking at, at a clock with Midway in the middle of that timepiece. Because the Japanese are going to be coming from the west, obviously. They'll be coming from 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, if they approach the island from the, from the northwest. The point where he positions his troops, the rendezvous point, is known as Point Luck. We talk with Trent Hone about why this is such a valuable position. I'm so glad you asked this question because it gives me a chance to talk about uh, John Parshall, who you know is co-author of Shattered Sword, one of the best Midway books, primarily from the Japanese perspective. But it's, yeah. it's really an exhaustive look at it. So where the, the Nimitz stations his carriers initially, Point Luck, is in a spot where he's got a lot of flexibility. He's got a lot of options. If the carriers are there and the battle begins to develop in a way that he doesn't anticipate, the Japanese come from a different direction or a different strength. Well, they're going to be able to withdraw because essentially they're 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 out of range of where the Japanese were expected to be. They're pretty far from Midway at that point, so they can just withdraw because Nimitz knows he he he's got to sort of stack the deck in his favor. He can't just go to toe toe to toe with the Japanese. He's got to find a way to gain an advantage, and Point Luck gives him that opportunity, so they can withdraw if things don't work out. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. The Japanese Air Force strikes Midway Island early on the morning of June 4th. We talk with Peter Mansour about what they're trying to do to knock out this island, then they can take it over, but they try and do it by the air. But they should have noticed one thing when they got there. All the planes, the American planes, were already in the air. And they knew they were coming. This should have been the first sign to Yamamoto and Admiral Nagumo of the combined fleet known as the Kido Butai that the Americans knew they were coming. Peter Monsoor tells us about this attack on the island as the Battle of Midway has begun. 
Um, it has a large number of land-based aircraft on it. The Japanese needed to neutralize that that air force uh, that those planes actually took off once the Japanese carriers were discovered and made a number of attacks on the Japanese ships. Ineffective, as it turned out, but nevertheless, it showed uh, the striking power of a undiminished midway airstrip. So the priority of the uh, initial strike for Japan was to neutralize the midway airstrip, and then secondarily to take out the beach defenses to enable the landing craft that would follow uh, to land Japanese Marines ashore and take the island. So the first strike is launched very early in the morning of of, uh, June 4th, and it hits the island. It, It damages the airstrip, but doesn't completely destroy it, having now weathered several uh, counterattacks by the land-based U.S. aircraft. The Japanese carrier commander, Nagumo, decides that he needs to um, send a follow-up strike to finish the job. Nagumo's strike on the midway is effective, but it does not knock out the island. He's going to have to make another attack. Not to mention all those planes are going to have to go land somewhere. Midway, since there's nowhere else for them to land in the middle of nowhere, he can get them on the second strike too. But this is Nagumo's dilemma. If he's loading up all his forces for another attack, he's going to leave himself a little bit undefended. We talk with Peter Mansour about what we call Nagumo's dilemma. He'd have many on this day of June 4th. Well, Nagumo, he realizes he needs to launch a second strike at Midway. His search planes haven't found any American ships. So there might not be any out there. And, you know, all he has to do is send out a second strike and finish the job. But just about the time that he's getting ready to launch a search plane uh, from the cruiser Tone, which had been delayed in launching, finds uh, the American task force. Admiral Nagumo's dilemma about having to strike Midway a second time, it does leave him exposed. But he's got to do it. That's the objective. No other American carriers have been sighted. There's no other American forces known to be in the area. Meanwhile, three American carriers lurk to the northeast of the island. They're loading up to attack those carriers that have been sighted. The Americans have found them before the Japanese have found them. There's so much luck involved in the Battle of Midway. For example, Nagumo would find out that the Americans are there when a scout plane does discover the American fleet. But that plane randomly just went up 30 minutes later than they thought. What's the big deal? It's a scout plane. It's leaving 30 minutes later than it was supposed to. But that 30 minutes would prove crucial as Nagumo has to rearm his planes, refuel them, and get them ready for the second strike at Midway. Admiral Nagumo Chuichi, he's he's focused. He's the Japanese carrier commander. He's focused on Midway, right? So they launch a strike against Midway. They want to suppress its airfield, knock out its ability to participate in the battle. Uh, And he's keeping his second wave ready to strike uh, ships in case an American carrier force is sighted. But, you know, Smart has thrown everything uh, at at the the Japanese carriers. So Gumo is like, geez, you know, here come all these planes from Midway. This is a problem. I'm probably going to need to strike the island again. So he starts to rearm that group of planes that was going to that was being held ready to strike a, a U.S. carrier group. He starts to rearm them so that they can strike midway again. So much of the key of these aircraft carrier battles is find them before they find you. The Americans were looking; they knew they would be there, and they do find them. They find the Japanese fleet, all four of their carrier, well, three of their carriers, well before the Japanese can locate them. 
But the Americans kind of almost lose that advantage when their first wave of attack are these torpedo bombers. American torpedo bombers are shot down in huge numbers. Almost nobody makes it out. We talk with Peter Monsoor about this first wave, this unsuccessful attack by the American torpedo bombers. Well, the Americans had discovered the, the Japanese fleet uh, well before the Japanese discovered the American fleet. Uh, they had search planes from Midway that located it. So they launched their strike, but they wanted to do it quickly before a Japanese counterstrike could could launch against them. And so they, it was a very uncoordinated attack. Uh, the torpedo bombers, the fighters, and the dive bombers all sort of launched independently and made their way to the target independently. And the first ones in were the torpedo bombers, and they were shot down really to the last plane. Um, the only survivor of one of the squadrons was Ensign Gay, who sort of floats around on a life raft looking at what's happening around him, becomes uh, really the only eyewitness, American eyewitness, to what to the battle from from the Japanese perspective on the sea. The American torpedo bombers are known as devastators. They're not just unsuccessful because they have inexperienced pilots. American torpedoes have huge problems. They're taken into the theater of war, but they don't work. They fire too too low. They don't they don't explode at all. The planes are, are you know have to go slow and keep their wings level on approach, and they're just sitting ducks. We talk with Trent Hone about the huge problems with the American torpedo system, especially when you compare it to the Japanese torpedoes that were sinking American ships left and right across the Pacific in those early months. We also hear about one of those torpedo bombers, Ensign George Gay. He survives. He's really the only survivor of the first attack from his flight group and how he would watch the Battle of Midway on the front row. He says he's cheering like he's at a football game. We'll hear from Ensign Gay uh, reliving those moments in the sea, watching the Battle of Midway. Books, honestly, books have been written about this problem. <laughs> uh, and it's a, it's a real problem. The, the U.S. torpedoes are just rife with problems. The devastators, the torpedo bombers, have their own problems. <laughs> they perform pretty well at Coral Sea, right? They help to sink the small carrier Shoho. So, but they're not facing a whole lot of opposition. That's more of a combined and unified attack. Torpedo H shows up without any escorts, without any other planes. They yeah. show up alone. So the defending uh, Mitsubishi A6Ms, the Zero fighters, can just come down to the deck and, and shoot them out of the sky. Uh, and these planes, the Devastators are slow. You know, they're state of the art in 1937 when they entered service, but now it's five years later, it's 1942. Aviation technology has has left them by, and to launch their torpedoes, they have to go low and they have to go slow, and they just they just can't they just can't do it. Um, and the same thing starts happening with the other torpedo bombing groups that that start showing up, except for the ones from Yorktown because they're part of a more cohesive group. Yorktown's squadrons show up more or less as a unit, uh, and so they have some defensive firepower along with them, but. The torpedo bombers sacrifice themselves essentially to buy, in the broader context of the battle, they sacrifice themselves to buy time. None of these planes from Midway are hitting anything. They're disrupting Nagumo's attentions. They're sort of, you know, keeping him reactive. And while this is going on, one of his search planes reports American ships to the east. You know, they have seen the American carriers now. And um, so Nagumo is saying, okay, 
Now we switch the armor in his back. We want to go strike the the, the carriers. We rearm his his the strike force that's sort of standing and ready and waiting. That starts at about eight thirty or so. And but before that strike can be spotted, he's got to land the planes from his first strike, and that's when the torpedo bombers from Hornet. They're the first ones to show up. Torpedo Squadron Eight. That's when they show up, and so now. You know, Nagumo is running out of out of time. And so the devastators don't do much. Torpedo Squadron 8 is they're, they're all shot out of the sky. One of their um one of their members survives. That's it. Ends in George Gay. When we got to Midway and were to make our takeoff, it was the first time we'd ever carried a torpedo, pickle as we called them. We just went into the fleet, tried to get around the the, the destroyers and then the cruisers and things to take whatever came first as a target. They had about 75 airplanes down there trying to eat us up, and we only had 15, so we didn't last very long. I was tailing Charlie, last aircraft in the whole formation, and I was kind of sitting back here watching this whole thing. I made my attack on this carrier, and I somehow got in close enough to drop my torpedo and get through. I couldn't use this hand. I had a bullet in here and one in this arm. The Zeros jumped on me again out on the other side and shot me down. So when I came back to the surface, bumped into my life raft. Also, this black cushion. I didn't want them to pick me up. So I put this cushion over my head, and I would turn this sideways to any ship or anything that was close, and I could watch them out of the corner. I'd see through this thing. They were looking at me with binoculars. But they'd see this thing and assume that it was a box or a piece of debris or something rather than my head bobbing up out there, and they passed me up. I was able to stay there all day, even though they were picking people up all over the place. I'm sitting right in the front row here of this big battle. I saw our dive bombers come in and knew all those boys too, and I knew that uh, this was their first dive, not only uh, with a bomber board, but in that airplane. I was just cheering like a football game. A PBY came by, landed on the water, and picked me up in his PBY. Took me into Midway. When I got down to Pearl Harbor and the Admiral came in, Admiral Nimitz, he said uh, he wanted to know about it. A fisheye view and a front row seat to the biggest naval battle in history. Nimitz has launched his, his dive bombers, his torpedo planes, from his three carriers. They have an idea where the Japanese carriers are, and they're going in huge numbers to go find them, try and sink them, before the Japanese can do the same to them. The Japanese had four carriers on site. The Akagi, the Kaga, the Soryu, and the Hiryu. I think they only have six total carriers in their entire fleet. Four of them are at Midway. And these carriers in this vast Pacific War, just you know, thousands of miles of ocean in between some of these islands and these battles, having carriers and being able to attack like that, it's key. It has to, you have to have the aircraft carriers to win this war. Peter Monsoor tells us about how this battle sets up and the destruction of the Kido Batai, the combined fleet, the Japanese Navy, is imminent. Once that had happened, the Japanese fighter cover had been brought down to sea level to deal with the torpedo planes. And then miraculously overhead uh, appear the U.S. dive bombers, uh, led by Wade McCluskey and other leaders. But McCluskey uh, was really the key here because 
his squadrons were running out of fuel and they couldn't find the Japanese carriers. And then he spots a destroyer down below, which had been chasing after the submarine USS Nautilus and was returning to join, rejoin the Japanese fleet at high speed. And so he decides to follow its wake and miraculously appears over the target at the same time that the, the Yorktown squadrons appear over the target. And so the dive bomber is now unencumbered by any sort of uh, Japanese uh, fighter screen, which is nowhere to be seen, uh, launch against uh, the four carriers below them, hitting three. It's around 10.15 in the morning. Flying high, the American dive bombers, the dauntless airplanes, suddenly see their target. We talk with Peter Mansour about how these dive bombers take these incredible angles and try and drop their bombs on the three carriers that they've seen. If they can be successful, if they can sink these carriers, they could change the war. Now, a dive bomber um, dives onto its target from a medium altitude, and it goes into a, not quite a vertical dive, but uh, say 60-degree dive in order to improve its accuracy and get the bomb on target. Two of the Japanese carriers, Toryu and the uh, Kaga, are hit by multiple bombs and, and burn out of control. The Akagi is only hit by one, uh, but it hits in just the right place, penetrates to the flight deck where there's all these planes that are rearmed and refueled and ready to launch against Midway Island again, but had never been able to take off. And they're in the hangar deck and the bomb penetrates to that level and blows up and, and there's a bunch of secondary explosions and the Akagi eventually burns out of control as well and is scuttled. So in a matter of minutes, three of the four Japanese carriers um, are burning and, and uh, doomed for the bottom of the seabed. The Japanese aircraft carriers are hit. Soryu, Kaga, and Akagi are all burning. These Japanese aircraft carriers, they have these wooden flight decks. There's 80,000-some pounds of explosives and bombs on these planes, jet fuel underneath. These bombs, although not a ton of them hit, they do incredible damage. We bring Trent Hone back, the military historian. We asked him straight up, is there a more consequential 15, 20 minutes in U.S. military history, in any military history, than these dive bomber attacks on the Japanese carriers at the Battle of Midway? So much changes. At 10.15, Nagumo... The Japanese are arguably winning the war in the Pacific, possibly on their way to, to force peace between the United States. And some 15, 20, 30 minutes later, the war has changed. It's in the neighborhood of about 20 minutes, I think, maybe even less. Uh, certainly, it's, it's under half an hour uh, because they start approaching the Japanese carriers at about 10. And by 1030, it's 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 done. I was thinking about it because you're like, is, is there a more consequential 15 minutes anywhere? And, it, you know, the... The Civil War fans are probably going to say, hey, we've got competition with the bayonet charge at Little Round Top. You know, Joshua Chamberlain's uh, stand there. But, you know, that was one that was the only example that immediately came to mind for me. I'm sure there are others that I'm forgetting. It's hard not to think about luck when you when you talk about this sequence, because the three three squadrons of dime bombers all sort of converge on on the Japanese carriers at once. Majority of Enterprise's planes go after carrier Kaga, and she's hit by at least four bombs, maybe five. The Yorktown group bombs Soiru and, and hits her with at least three bombs, three large ones. And Akagi is probably the most interesting story. That's Nagumo's flagship. Dick Best uh, notices this. He's, he's the commander of bombing six. Like, oh, geez, nobody's diving on this other carrier, Akagi. So he stops his approach to Kaga. A pair of his wingmen follow him, and they dive on Akagi. And Best's bomb hits Akagi. 
Uh, Akagi also suffers a, at least one near miss from, from one of the other planes. That hit starts a fire in Akagi's, in that hangar deck, right? This is where that strike that was being prepared to go after the American carriers is being armed. Some of the planes are probably fueled. A significant difference between Japanese carriers and U.S. carriers is the Japanese have enclosed hangars. And this is something that that is a real factor with what happens at Midway. So, you know, Enterprise hit by a bomb at Coral Sea, and the bomb can explode in the hangar, um, and it, but it doesn't create the same kind of pressure wave because it can blow out because the U.S. carrier hangars are open spaces. It's not the case with the Japanese carriers. And so when a bomb goes off in this enclosed space, especially because you've got armed and fueled planes in the space. So Kaga turns into a, a just a flaming wreck, more or less immediately. You know, fires across the length of the ship. The fire mains are uh, broken and out. There's really no opportunity for her damage control team to deal with, with the damage. Three Japanese battleships, possibly four cruisers, three transports and one destroyer were sunk. The loss of the Jap aircraft carriers was extremely heavy. Two or three sunk and two badly damaged. On this Allied bomber can be seen part of the destruction wrecked upon the enemy. As the Jap fleet turned about, battered and beaten, the Battle of Midway became America's outstanding success, and one that may decisively change the balance of striking power in the Western Ocean. Sawyer was divided into three different bays. Each one of those bays got hit by a bomb. Fire throughout the whole length of, of that carrier as well. Two of them are essentially burning pyres almost immediately. Akagi lasts longer, but Nugumu has to abandon it and shift his flag to Cruiser Nagara. And as aviation gasoline begins to feed the fire, the crew's unable to contain it. And, and she becomes a, a write off as well. USS Yorktown, the American aircraft carrier, was severely damaged at the Battle of Coral Sea. It barely made it back to Pearl Harbor, and working, you know, overtime, the Americans were able to put it back and make it seaworthy again, and actually get it from Pearl Harbor back out to this battle. The Yorktown, the Japanese never thought that the Yorktown would ever be in this area. They didn't even know if it was usable. Trent Hone tells us the story of the USS Yorktown, the only United States aircraft carrier lost in the Battle of Midway. How it gone from damage at Coral Sea to damage at Midway and fixed again, only to be sunk. Piru is the fourth one that has come to Midway, uh, and she's obscured the, the attacking planes in that uh, initial strike on Seer. So she's, she survives unscathed, and she is the, the weapon that Nagumo's got to, to strike back with. And, you know, a credit to, to her crew, and immediately they start saying, okay, you know, the... Our other ships have been damaged. We've got to do something. We've got to fight back. She launches her first strike, which is a group of dive bombers uh, just before 11 o'clock. So about a half hour after uh, the damage to the the other carriers have, have been done, he sends them off at about 1130 to search for the Northwest. You know, because if a strike is coming, then there's another Japanese carrier out there and we need to find it. And uh, I think the record shows that Spruance was a lot more confident at this point that, you know, the Japanese were pretty much knocked out. That was, you know, we got them, um, we've damaged them. That's probably it. Fletcher is much less confident. And so soon after that strike goes off, Hero's dive bombers show up on 
Yorktown's radar and you know it works the way it's supposed to work the fighters intercept the dive bombers they break up the formation however uh the dive bombers you know get through these dive bomber pilots from Hiro are are very skilled they're well respected within the Japanese fleet uh and they managed to hit Yorktown with you know three times even though their formation has has been disrupted so fires break out in Yorktown brought to a stop but she's damaged much less severely than the Japanese carriers were because you know her crew is pretty well practiced at, at damage control and and the configuration of US carriers as I talked about is 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 different damage control parties on Yorktown you know work diligently they get the fires out they get the carrier back underway and so now by the time here's torpedo bombers show up they see a carrier that's underway that appears undamaged and they think they're attacking a second one so Nagumo and other Japanese admirals begin to think all right you know we're not doing so badly here we've got one carrier left we sent out a strike we damaged one U.S carrier we sent out another strike and we're damaging another one you know because uh two torpedoes hit Yorktown knock out the power again and now she starts developing a very severe list of port um the crew begins to fear that she's going to capsize so they they abandon ship not too long after that there's another ohioan who makes a huge impact at the battle of midway it's a pilot harlan dixon born in 1914 in columbus ohio dixon leaves from the uss yorktown in a scout plane and he actually finds and sights and sends back an incredibly accurate location of the fourth carrier the japanese carrier the hear you dixon would be awarded the gold star he would later die in a 1944 training accident in california but his sighting of the hiryu leads to the fourth and final sinking of the japanese carrier and a complete defeat for the japanese imperial navy at the battle of midway yorktown's scouts you know launched uh, by fletcher find hiryu and so now her location is known Spruance's two carriers are undamaged uh, and they launch a strike and it arrives as Hiro is preparing her third strike wave. And it, it's a similar story to the other three Japanese carriers. Four bombs hit, fires break out, uh, and, and that is the end of the, of the fourth Japanese carrier. None of them uh, survive the operation. And although Nagumo uh, and uh, Admiral Yamamoto, who is farther back, he's the you know, commander-in-chief of the combined fleet, think, you know, we can probably still make this work, especially if we can find the Americans at night. We can we can attack them on the surface, you know, with our with our cruisers, with our battleships, and we can win. We can still win. Um, eventually, they they convince themselves that that is not a valid path of action, um, and so they begin they begin to withdraw. And, and Midway turns into the, this you know, incredible victory for for the U.S. Navy. The perfect teamwork at Midway between the commanders of our Army, Navy, and Marines struck the Japs a truly crippling and now historic blow. To the Navy goes America's profound thanks and admiration. To its individual heroes go decorations, symbolic of the highest honors a nation can bestow upon its fearless fighting men. And to the Marines and our Army men goes a nation's heartfelt gratitude. United as one great force, they will repeat the triumphs of Coral Sea and Midway in the mighty battle still ahead. A battle that will go on until Terry is won. The Japanese losses at Midway are staggering. They lose four carriers of their six. 
two cruisers, 292 aircraft, over 3,000 men, more men than died at Pearl Harbor. While the United States did lose the Yorktown, you know, destroyer, 137 aircraft, 307 dead from the United States. Many of those shot down pilots were actually recovered in the days after the battle for the United States. The Japanese would really never recover as far as what they lost that day. And the hero of that day should have been Joe Rochefort. It's his intelligence at Hypo and, and the men that he leads at that station in, in Hawaii in that dark, dank basement, as Colonel Peter Monsoor described it. But Rochefort never gets the credit. Admiral King hated Joe Rochefort. He's the one leading the, the Navy from Washington, D.C. Rochefort's ultimately reassigned to, to head up a dry dock in San Francisco the remainder of the war. He wouldn't get credit for many years after. You would see he'd be played by Hal Holbrook in the 1976 movie Midway of Charlton Heston, a big Hollywood blockbuster about the battle, and finally get some of that credit. And we're hoping, we hope this episode helps people understand that the Dayton native made such an impact on American history. He's a character in the 2019 Midway big Hollywood uh, blockbuster remake. We talk with Trent Hone, author of the upcoming book Master of the Art of Command, Admiral Chester Nimitz, and Victory in the Pacific. There's a link in the show notes to get that book. We talked to him about Joe Rochefort never getting the credit he deserved. Yeah, and Nimitz doesn't know about it. That is something that uh, sort of really surprises me about the story. Because just so listeners understand, you know, um, Hypo wasn't officially part of Nimitz's command. They serve Nimitz, but they're they're part of um, the naval district there in Hawaii. And so, you know, operationally, he doesn't have authority over them, but he you know gets familiar with their work, leverages it. Um, but they can be broken up and, and, and reassigned. And Nimitz does understand, you know, we've got to do intelligence better. There's, there are discussions about this uh, after after Midway. And I think one of the things that's on people's minds is, you know, there's a disagree- disagreement between Washington and uh, what's going on in Hawaii. And so not too long after that, there's a um, an intelligence center, Pacific Ocean areas that gets stood up within the Naval District Command, you know, and its client is 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 Nimitz's command. Um, and as part of that reorganization and reshuffling, Rochefort gets you know sent back stateside, and yeah, his contributions don't don't come to the fore until you know later research reveals it and and gives him, I think, the recognition that he that he deserves. So we wrap up today. We're joined last time by Colonel Peter Monsoor, a military historian at The Ohio State University. It's too simplistic to simply say that the Battle of Midway is the turning point of the Pacific War, and the United States would go on to win the war. Well, it takes hundreds of thousands of lives, three more years of fighting after Midway. We talked with Peter Monsoor about how to really consider this. It's not the ultimate turning point in the war, but it's certainly the biggest naval victory in U.S. history. It certainly did swing things the other direction. It was Japanese were beating us at every turn before June 4th, 1942. We talked to Peter Monsoor one last time about just what the Battle of Midway meant to the American war effort in the Pacific. Yeah, the battle is, is a turning point. What it does is this battle evens the odds, and it paves the way for a shift in the strategic initiative over the next six to nine months. But it's the battles of the uh, Solomon Islands, which are terrible in terms of attrition to ships and pilots on both sides, that really turn strategic initiative to the Americans irrevocably once those ships that are being built uh, in the United States come into service. 
So by early 1943, you have Essex-class carriers and fast battleships, uh, North Carolina-class, South Dakota-class entering the, the fleet, and the Japanese simply cannot keep up with the battle of, uh, of resources. So Midway doesn't turn the tide, but it stems the Japanese tide and makes sure that their battle, their war of, uh, of offensive initiative is over. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound, from the big cities to the river towns, first in flight making history, there's so many books you need to see, I like reading, and I like reading, Tippecanoe and Tyler too, from the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue, Edison and a man on the moon So many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading Our book recommendation today is Trent Hone, our guest book, Mastering the Art of Command, Admiral Chester Nimitz and the Victory in the Pacific. Again, it's a book brought to you by the U.S. Naval Institute. Trent's so great to talk to. I had so much fun. Uh, dude knows so much, not just about Midway, but just about the entire U.S. Navy in that first half of the 20th century. There's a link in the show notes to get that book. We talked to him about writing that book, his research process, and, and what it was like writing a book during the pandemic from his home in suburban Washington, D.C. Hopefully it'll be out here pretty soon. I wrote a study about the evolution of the organizational learning in the U.S. Navy, and that's a, a book called Learning War. And I wanted to extend that approach. And instead of looking at sort of the entire system of the Navy and how learning occurred, let me focus on a particular leader and, and the actions that he took to try to develop strategy and command effectively you know, in time of, of war. And so Nimitz was a really good vehicle for that. How does he make decisions? How does he use his staff? How does he use intelligence like Rochefort and Hypo? And how does he alter or improve or change his command and staff structure to promote a more effective flow of, of information? How does he organize the Pacific Fleet? Uh, how do those decisions about organize, organization influence battles and campaigns? And how does he uh, formulate plans, orders, strategy, and create options like at Point Luck? Like we were like we were talking about. One of the things that I tried to do, which I felt like is, it was a deficiency from from other uh, histories or, or failure, I should say, is it, it, there's a lot of history that's been written about the Pacific War that sort of chunks it up. They they focus on particular battles or particular campaigns. If you look at the course of the war from Nimitz's headquarters, these clear divisions between campaigns or battles don't really exist. And so I tried to recreate that flow and its tempo and its intensity, because I, I think that's important for understanding how, how decisions were made and, and Nimitz's performance as a leader. It's a pandemic project. Or, yeah. Yeah. The pandemic in some ways was useful. I was really lucky. I got a lot of research done before the pandemic hit. There were, of course, more things that I would have wanted to go see and find that had there not been a pandemic, I probably would have. Uh, <laughs> but I had a lot of material to work with already so yeah there there were times where it was like well I, i'm not i'm not driving home from work right now why don't i start working on the book 5 30 to 6 30 hour not slogging it out on the beltway yes yes uh, <laughs> that'll do it for today guys the battle of midway 
an episode we've always wanted to do. Joe Rochefort, and even our scout plane friend Harlan Dixon from Ohio, Agnes Meyer Driscoll from Westerville, Ohio, and their roles and that smashing and all-important U.S. win over the Japanese. Special thanks to retired Colonel Peter Monsoor, again, military historian, professor at The Ohio State University, a professor of history. Such a great interview and, and someone we, we needed to get on the show and would love to have on again. He's got such vast knowledge in so many areas and served this country with such distinction. Uh, and We thank him for that, and we thank him for joining the show. Thanks again to Trent Hone. Uh, go pick up his book. One of the most fun military historians to talk to. Just just a really great interview with him. And Beth Weinhart. She's retired now, but uh, she joined the show a couple times. You can go listen to our episode of Ohio vs. Booth, one of our first and most popular episodes about why Prohibition was Ohio's fault. Beth was integral, really, one of our first interviews on this show. She's always been so uh, supportive of the show, and we hope she's doing well in retirement. And, and again, you can look up our episode about Agnes Meyer Driscoll, from 2017, Ohio vs. Espionage, one of our first, I don't know, 15 or 20 episodes, I think. But an unknown story about a woman cryptographer, really America's most important codebreaker in her day. That'll do it for today. Again, don't forget to rate and review the show. You can go check out all our shows on evergreenpodcast.com uh, or go to our website, ohiovtheworldpodcast.com as well. So good to be back with you. We're just getting started here on the second half of Season 7 back on our normal schedule of every other Tuesday, and we will be joined by four different guests to talk about Mary Church Terrell, one of the great activists of our time, an African-American from her time at Oberlin. She's born into slavery in 1863 and lives to see the Brown versus the Board of Education decision in 1954, and she is integral at every point along the way when it comes to civil rights and women's rights, really a key player in so much of, of our unknown civil rights history. Uh, she's just right off the frame in so many different events and a really interesting and fun story we're going to talk about with some with some great guests, some authors, and we'll go up to Oberlin College in, in Northeast Ohio, that liberal arts bastion that's been around for so long and was Mary Church Terrell's alma mater, a place that she went back to. Uh, we'll talk about her incredible life of almost 90 years of activism an episode that we're very excited to bring you that'll be in two weeks thank you guys so much for joining us it's great to be back on ohio versus the world we hope you're having a great summer welcome to anthology of heroes the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it in this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II. Each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past.
Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.